Good morning, good morning, good morning to the Impossible Radio Show with your girl, Lady J. I'm so glad that you all have tuned in this morning with me. I have a very special guest this morning on the Impossible Radio Show, but you all know how we do. Before we get into our guests, we have to get the formalities out of the way. So with that being said, um, if you would like to share with your family and friends or become a faithful JQLM Radio listener, remember to download the JQLM radio app on your Android Apple devices. Apple, you will have your own JQLM radio app finally coming up in March, I believe. Um, but in the meantime, you can also get JQLM radio on through the TuneIn radio app. Just go search for JQLM radio once you have it downloaded. Make sure you make it a favorite. You can also get it through the Stream of Simple radio app, or you can tune in straight from our Facebook page. Go to JQLM radio. And just click on the Use App button right there on the home page. Or you can tune in from our website at www.egoentertainmentnet.com. If you ever miss a live show, you can always catch your favorite show on any of the major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Deezer, and CastBox. Also, I would like to give a shout out to our sponsors the Impossible Radio Show is sponsored in part by Ryder Patel, owner of Single to Shoddy. This is not your parents' matchmaker. Single to Shoddy is a matchmaker service for urban South Asian singles looking to find meaningful relationships without ever having to use traditional dating apps. Single to Shoddy believes love is love, and their goal is to help you find your perfect match. Visit singletoshoddy.com today. That's www.singletoshadi.com. Also, the Impossible Radio Show is sponsored in part by Nora Candles, owned by Nora. Nora Candles are an Arabian-scented candle made with non-GMO soy, natural plant-based wax, lead-free wick, and more safe, clean products. The candles are uplifting and stimulate positive energy. To purchase your Nora Candles, visit NuraCandles.com. That's N-U-R-A Candles.com. Today, get 15% off when you use the code LADYJ. So now that we have our formalities out of the way, let's go ahead and introduce our guest for today. So our guest this morning is Miss Gay Willis. She actually is the host of Hello. Yeah, she actually Miss Gay Willis is actually the host of um, a show here right on JQLM Radio, Self-Destructive Addict. So she plays a quirky and quirky character, funny. It's comedy, but she spills the real tea, y'all, about love and relationships and toxic love and relationships, actually. Um, and sometimes spills some of her own personal tea about it. So you need to tune in on Wednesday nights from 7.30 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on JQLM Radio. She is also a, a dream and vision coach. So let's welcome Miss Gay Willis to the show this morning. Good morning, Miss Gay. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Good. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? I know I just told them that you have a show here and you're a dream and vision coach and things, but can you give everyone a little bit of background about yourself before we get into your story? My background for uh, EGO Entertainment or just my background, period? No, just you, period. Just introduce yourself. Okay, my name is Gay Willis, also uh, known as Minister Willis here in Oklahoma City, or Mother Willis. Don't ask me about the mother, because I tried to fight that title, but it stuck. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> I am uh, 65 years old, and uh, I grew up in the foster system as a young young girl. 
because my mom died when I was about two years old. So I ended up in foster care, first children's home foster care, which caused me to have a lot of low self-esteem, which caused me to go into destructive relationships. And um, that's why I do uh, Gigi, the self-destructive matter, because I understand how we tend to fall into destructive relationships because we ourselves are destructive to our own selves. And that's what it, that is all about. But uh, I fell into relationships that were abusive. And uh, one relationship almost cost me my life. So that's why I call myself a walking miracle because I got out of situations that I know a lot of people didn't get out of. But I'm still here. And so I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I live in Oklahoma City right now. But I, I, I grew up on a Greenwood, what they call, which they call Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was born and raised on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, so were you alive when the Black Wall Street was booming? Hmm? Were you alive when the Black Wall Street was booming? Were you born? Oh, yeah. no. That was in 1921. I wasn't even thought about <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, well, you come, you are uh, living in a place where, and grew up in a place with very rich history. So that's awesome. Um, Thank with, you. With that being said, let's uh, go ahead and dig into um, your story. So you said you uh, grew up in the foster care system um, when your mother died yeah. um, at a very young age. Can you tell us what the foster system was like there um, growing up? What kind of things did you experience? Back in the 50s, the way it is now, now a great auntie raised me, so they kind of call it, now they call it a family foster care. But before I became a foster child, I was a, uh, like so I lived in the uh, in a children's home. I stayed there until I was five, and then I moved in with a great auntie. I can't remember a lot of things because I, it's like I blocked things out of my mind. I remember trying to, you know, trying to fit in. I remember trying to act like I had a mama at home and, you know, all the other kids had their mothers, their dads. I was really ashamed of myself because I didn't have that. And I never knew who my father was because he never stepped up to say I was his child. So that was a lot of pain in itself growing up in the foster system. In the foster system, I remember going to court every now and then. I had to say, you know, I would say things like, "Do you?" if they asked me a question, do you like where you are? And I would say yes. But I did it because that's what my great auntie told me to say when I went. This is what you say. You don't. That's it. If they ask you a question and you just tell them that you're happy, you tell them that you're you like where you are and all of that. Which I didn't know mm-hmm. at the time that they were giving money out for whoever whoever was you know raising me or my and my brother, youngest brother, my oldest brother. He ended up with his uh, daddy's auntie, so mm-hmm. we kind of separated a little bit, but. I, I don't remember a lot about it. All I remember is growing up, being ashamed of who I was, being ashamed of being a foster child, being ashamed that I didn't have what the other kids had, being ashamed that I had to call my great auntie mama. I was just ashamed. That's all I remember is being ashamed, basically. Oh, well, that's understandable. Um, the homes that you were placed or the family that you were placed with, um, was it a a good home? I'm gonna say I think it was because I say it might it be, it was for me. She wasn't loving. She didn't show love. So I grew up not knowing how to show love to other people. I grew up wanting love. I grew up wanting to be you know someone to pay attention to me or someone to 
uh, give me love, but I didn't receive love. So that's one of the things I didn't receive as a foster child was someone knowing that somebody loved me, knowing that somebody cared about me and my outcome. I didn't receive that growing up. I didn't receive anyone saying, I, sh I love you, you know, you're my princess. None of that. I never heard any of that. So all that stuff was foreign to me when I hear other people say that, like, what? Your mama and your daddy tell you that? So it didn't make sense to me because I never experienced it. Hmm. That's that's understandable, but I think some people think it's so, I'll say simplistic in a sense. Well, everybody should know that, you know, that that's normal or everybody should know that that's love. But if you're, if you've grown up in a completely different environment, then you wouldn't know. So, um, that definitely but, makes sense. Right. So I thought that was normal. It was weird to me when I became an adult. It was like a rude awakening for me to see people hugging each other. Cause I didn't, none of that happened there. No one ever hugged me. No one ever said, I love you. No one ever said you're beautiful. No, none of that. So to see other people do that was really strange to me. And it, and I kind of would set, you know, kind of step back because I felt like I didn't fit in and I didn't belong. Hmm. Okay. So let's fast forward then to um, when did you come out of the foster care system and what happened when you um, transitioned out of that? When I came out, I was 17. I, well, really, I, I graduated at 17, but I came out at 18. But there was no one there to help me because they didn't have the things. That, and I believe that's why they do the things they do now because they realize the mistakes they made in the past. So I was on my own, completely on my own. So I had to, you know, I went to college. I, didn't, I flunked college the first year because I was free. I felt like, woo, freedom. Mm -hmm. So I was doing things, you know, no, I was partying, I was hanging out with people, I had made new friends, something I wasn't used to. Right. So it set me back. So I had to start, I had to start college over because of that, because I was so busy trying to, have, you know, mingle with everybody and belong. And, and I still, I was still a wallflower, though. I was still stepped back because the things that they did and, and the friendships that they had, I was just learning how to get that. I wasn't used to that, so I was learning how to get that. So I would do things just so somebody could be my friend. I would give up whatever they wanted from me. I don't care if it was a pair of shoes they wanted. Oh, you like my necklace or earrings? I gave it up because I wanted them to be my friend because that's not mm -hmm. something I grew up having. Wow. Can you, you understand what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. I just didn't understand it, so it took me a while to learn that I didn't have to cater to other people to be a for them to be my friend. It took me a while to learn that I didn't have to give up everything that I that I like for them so that they can enjoy life better than me. So I spent most of my, my first part of my adulthood when I t left the foster system into pleasing other people instead of myself. Hmm. And I learned through God, you know, through, uh, through uh, going into church. When I started going to church, that's what I learned that, okay, this is, God wants me to be happy too. God wants me to enjoy life. So. I had to find myself because I sure was lost. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we're getting ready to take a quick break. When we when we come back, we're going to get into the story of um, the relationship with the man that almost cost you your life. So okay. um, to all of our listeners, stick and stay. We'll be right back. You are tuned into the Impossible Radio Show with your girl, Lady J, and my special guest today, Ms. Gay Hello. Willis. Stick and stay. 
we are back you are tuned in to the i'm possible radio show with your girl lady J. and my special guest this morning is miss gay willis um so when we left off we were talking about her transition out of the foster care system and how uh she started going through her young adult life um doing any and everything giving up any and everything to fit in um she thought that's what you know she needed to do in order to gain uh, friendships love and things of that sort now we're going to get into um her relationship uh, that I, that almost cost her her life so um miss willis you want to tell us um how you guys met and how this all started yes i met uh him here in oklahoma city gorgeous beautiful man i thought <laughs> you know sometimes you don't know until you get into a relationship mm-hmm but he was a gentleman. He really was. He treated me like a like a queen when I first met him. And so I thought, wow, this is something here. I'm, here I am with this gorgeous, fine man, tall, dark, and handsome. And I'm going to be the envy of every girl. And I was. But what I found out that he also had other girls. But I didn't find that out till later. But at the in the beginning, all I could see was my love for him. And so by the time I realized... What I had gotten myself into, I, we had three kids, three sons together, mm-hmm. but he started jumping on me uh, if I went somewhere. Where you been? So he would start jumping on me. Uh, who you talking to? You know, most little controlled things he started doing. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I accepted it because I said, oh, he's not going to do that again. He loves me. He really loves me because he's concerned about uh, what I'm doing, where I am, you know, all those little things that you tell yourself, those lies. Right. So we were, we, we were together five years, and the first two years were great. It's when the, the last three years is when everything started to get tumbling and turning over. Mm-hmm. And women started coming at me, letting me know that they were with him. And then uh, if I said something to him, that he would jump on me or, or he would uh, threaten me or he would uh, – I remember one time we went out to a, at the time we were young, we went out to a club and this uh, guy was looking at me. I don't, I don't even know who this guy was, but he said something to me about the guy looking at me. You must know him. I said, no, I don't know him. He said, well, we're going to go home now. So we let, we left. I went outside the club. I stood outside the club to wait on him to get the car. When I looked up, the car was headed straight for me. All I could see was headlights. Mm. And I jumped behind the stump, and that's what saved me was that stump. I jumped behind the stump. Mm. He couldn't hit it that way. It saved me. I, I moved. So I didn't go home with him that night, but I still stayed with him. Because mm. you're still telling yourself he didn't mean that. He was just trying to scare me. Then the, the night that I did leave, it was because he had went through my mail. Now, by this time, I had, he had brought me down. I was living on welfare. I was getting food stamps, and I was living in the projects. Mm-hmm. And he was living there, too. You know, a lot of times we allow men to come in, and we don't realize that we're not only are we messing up our lives, we're messing up their lives because we're allowing them to come into this, and we're allowing them to be there with us. Right. And we're the ones that's paying the rent. We're the ones that's buying the groceries. We're the ones that's paying the bills. And what is he doing? Nothing. Right. Right. But they, that I had to realize that this was causing trouble because this is what he was used to. He didn't have to work because I had it covered. So 
that last night when he came in, I don't remember what, what we were arguing about. It had something to do with my, him going through my mail, and he thought he saw a check. And when I said, you thought I had a check, what was you going to do, take it? And just when I said that, he punched me. And then he punched me, and he kept punching me. And we were in a two-story townhouse, and he took me upstairs and threw me down. And I remember my son screaming, please don't hurt my mama, don't hurt my mama. And he pulled his fist back, and he looked at me, and he said, if you say one more word, I promise you I will kill you. And that made me realize he was serious. Mm-hmm. So I got quiet. It's like, you know how God talks to you? Mm-hmm. He talks to you in your voice and you hear him. And I heard him say, you need to get out and you need to get out now. And that's what I did. When he got up, after I didn't say anything. He's like, he calmed down. He was a whole different person. He was all sweet and acted like he hadn't done anything. He said, well, I'm going out. He had this ritual. He went out every night come back in the morning. Well, when he got away from me and left the house, I didn't have a car. I didn't even have a telephone. That's how bad it was. I had to go next door and call my friend to come and pick me up and to get me out of there. And she came and picked me up. I took my, my I had four kids. I had a daughter when I met him. But I took my four kids, a change of clothes for each one of those kids, and I walked away and I never looked back. And I hid from him for three years. He looked for me. He was hunting for me. He went everywhere. He went to my great auntie's house, which I didn't have a relationship with her, so she didn't know where I was because I didn't really talk to her. Mm-hmm. He went to some of my cousins. I didn't have a great relationship with them because I didn't grow up with them. I, you know, I was a loner. So he couldn't find me. And I, I stayed with friends. I was homeless for almost a year before I actually got another place to stay. But I was so afraid that I stayed inside this house I got blessed with a home through a section, not the Section 8 Housing Authority. It was $35 a month, two-car garage, no car. So I put a uh, a play area out there for my kids so they wouldn't have to go outside because he would be walking around in that neighborhood. Mm. And I would see him, but he didn't know I was there. Mm. So I kept my kids safe by keeping them inside and him not know, not seeing them, you know. Because if they saw him, they would know, Daddy, Daddy. So I had right. to keep them in. And not let them out. It, it it was a long, it was a process, but we made it through. <laughs> Man, that That's was why clever. I said I walked a miracle. Ma'am? Yeah, that was clever. That was real clever. Okay, you're breaking up. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. That was real clever. Yep. Oh, I think real clever. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's, I had. Yeah, I, I had to do it in order to keep myself safe because back in the 70s, they didn't have the procedures that they have now for domestic violence because if you called the police, they would just say, well, let's let him sleep it off. He's just angry. And, you know, here he is back in there. They'll take him to jail, let him sleep it off. He come back home. So they did not they did not arrest them back then. They didn't do it like that. You, they just said this is a domestic dispute. We don't get into that. So a lot of women got killed. A lot of women got, you know, hurt because of the system. We had no protection. Right. We had to deal with it. I had to hide, so I hid three years from him in order to keep myself safe and my children safe. So, And I try to tell women sometimes you have to give up something to be safe. Right, right. I agree. So let me ask you this. Was there any instance while you were in that relationship where you actually fought back? Yes, I fought back every time. I was a fighter. 
But he knew that, so he got to the point where he would move everything so I wouldn't fight him because I picked up lamps, I picked up a pan, whatever I could pick up, I would fight him because I'm, I'm only five feet. Hmm. Broad, you know. So, I, yes, I would fight him every time. We got into a fight, I would fight back. But it got to the point where I couldn't fight back. I was tired. And I would just lay down, like when he would just start punching me sometimes, I would just cover myself so I wouldn't get so many bruises. Uh, he he he, was, he kicked me in my stomach when I was pregnant with, with my oldest son. I remember him kicking me in my stomach, and I was trying to, instead of fighting him, I was trying to protect my child. So I bent over to hold my stomach and, you know, bend my body so I could protect my my son. Right. So I couldn't fight him. Because I was trying to protect what I was carrying. Right. So in, in in this or during this incident where he tried to kill you with the car, but um, mm-hmm. instead hitting the stump because you jumped behind the stump. Tell me what exactly went through your head when you saw the car coming at you. I went into shock. I I couldn't believe that he actually did that because that was something I I never thought he would do was something like that. So I don't know if he was trying to, I don't know if he was was trying to put fear in me or if if he was trying to kill me. But it looked like he was trying, if he had hit me, he definitely, because he would have hit me, knocked me right into that wall. I wouldn't have been able to get out. I'd been pinned. But I didn't think of all that at the time. All I know is I had to get out the way. And so after, when jumping behind there, um, did you, I mean, what was your mindset, you know, once that was over, like in between him um, trying to run you over and you actually going back home? Like, were you, were you playing with the fact in your head of whether or not you're going to leave or, or what was that like? I did not. I really had not thought of that at the time. I went home, but he wasn't there. And I didn't see him for a week. Hmm. But I did think about if he came in that door, I was going to kill him. So I went and bought a gun. I went and bought a gun that next day. And then next day I said, now, if he come in his house, I'm just going to shoot him. But I'm glad I didn't get that opportunity because he never came back home. Hmm. He waited a week or so later before he came. And by that time, I had gotten over it. I had forgot about it. I was moving on. So I didn't really... It never went back. My mind never went back to killing him again. But I'm like I said, I'm glad I didn't because that means I'd have been I'd have been locked up and, and he'd have been free. Well, uh, uh, was, if I didn't kill him, he'd have been free or he'd, he'd been in the grave, and I've been in for murder. So I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. So you, you but you you said you never called the police, right? So there there they wouldn't have been able to establish a pattern of domestic no. violence behavior. Hmm. Um, I called the police past, but they always say that, oh, he's just angry for right now. You know, we don't get into these situations like this mm-hmm. when couples are fighting. Uh, it's a domestic dispute. That's what they call it. So they would let him go. Wow. That's, and they tell us to work it out. Wow. That's that's something. Um, I, I think that um, shooting him at that night that he was, you know, promised to kill you with his fist, I think that would have that would have been a night where killing him would have been warranted. You know, to protect you and your kids. No, not not back then. Well, I, I'm I'm just saying in that 
in that moment, in that instance, um, the right. the logic, you know, what I'm saying the logical thing would have been, yeah, let I'm I need to, you know, if I'm gonna ever get out of here, because some people have to end up killing their partner just to get away from them, um, and that's right, you know, that's just the reality of it, and sometimes they, especially when they're abusing the kids just as much as they are the, the um, the spouse, so, um, right, but um. <laughs> He wasn't abusing the kids, just me. Mm. Mm. The yeah, fact that you were able boy, to hide, yeah, the fact that you were able to hide that long though with your kids and keep them from going outside—that was to me—that is just the most clever thing I've ever heard of. Especially improvising when the resources that we have now weren't available. So that's the first that I've no, I've heard no. of that. That is. So how did you ever, how did you get out to go to the store, you know, go to church and things of that sort if he was um, cruising that neighborhood? Well, I didn't go to church. They really stepped in. My church stepped in and protected me. And he would come to church looking for me, but they wouldn't tell him they knew where I was. They would tell him what I was doing. You know, they, they would greet him, talk to him and, you know, go on. Mm-hmm. But. I think he did ask if they knew where I was, but they never revealed that they did. Mm. So he never so he never saw you when he came to the church? No, because I wasn't there. They told me not to come because they knew he would be looking for me, and he was. Mm. That, that, that's, a, that's a good congregation right there. <laughs> A real good congregation right there. Because, you know, you know, if some people would be like, oh, that's your husband. You need to go work it out. That's a good congregation right there. They protected me. I didn't have nothing. In my, my pastor uh, and his wife, they put furniture in my house. Uh, different organizations like uh, Neighbor for Neighbor gave me beds for my children. So that was a blessing. I had food stamps. My daughter was the only one in school. The boys were, were little. My baby was like, when I left, he was probably... Let me see, three months old. And then I had a son that was two, and I had one that was three, then I had a daughter that was five. So I pulled her out of kindergarten, but she was in special needs classes, so it didn't affect her, and I told them why I had to pull her out. So when she went back to school, it didn't even phase her because she was in special needs classes. Mm-hmm. So that's what really helped me. And, and with them being as young as they were, not having to send them to school, that was a plus for me. Okay, so let's talk about then um, life after, you know, this. Um, one, how did it affect your children or were they affected or were they too young for it to affect them, you know, um, in a very severe way? And then how did you start putting your life back together after he stopped looking for you those three years? I started, I went to, went to school, I went to uh radio announcement announcement school and i also went to i had i had two degrees one was in radio another was in early childhood so i started working for community action after that after those three years teaching i um my kids they got once they got a little older they were allowed to go see their dad but i didn't go to see him I would drop them off at their uh, grandfather's and grandmother's house, and he would go there to see them. Uh, then someone would pick them up for me. I didn't actually go see him or anything like that. 
uh, he died though when my uh, baby boy was like five years old mm-hmm. because oh these kids because he got a confrontation with his wife that he had married. I guess he was jumping on her. I don't know. From my knowledge, she had left him and he went to go. He went to go get her to wherever she was at her sister's house. And her sister called the police. She got into an altercation with the police and they killed him. Mm. So he died what, back in the eighties, early eighties. So I didn't get, so I never had to deal with him again. And uh, it affected my boys more than me because that was their dad. So my oldest son had a, uh, he didn't trust policemen. I had to get him counseling. Uh, my youngest son had, he was angry. My middle son was angry. So he was doing a lot of stuff like getting in trouble and all that. So I had to get a lot of help for them, you know, but far as the part of them knowing their father is a abuser, they didn't know that part of him because I don't know if they remember that part because I've asked them and they said they don't. Mm. I see, I see. And and I know that has to be hard too as a mother, um, for especially a lot of women that are abused, to, you know, to that extent. Um, I've been in domestic violence relationships myself, but it, and it's, it's hard for a lot of women to not paint the father as a monster in front of in front of the children um, when he's been that way towards her, like separating their issues from his ability to be a father to the kids. Um, so right. tell me, was that difficult for you in, in them not remembering? Or did you feel that it made it a little easier for you to allow them or if they if they did have a relationship with their dad was it easier for you to allow that yeah it was oh yeah because they didn't remember so they loved their dad and i never paid him to be wicked or anything never i never talked about you know anything against him because that was their father even though he was abusive to me he did not abuse them and they loved him. So, no, I never said anything negative about their father. As a matter of fact, I really didn't talk to them about things that happened. I was writing my book, The Make It of a Woman, How I Overcame Domestic Violence. When I was writing that book, I talked to them and I told them, this is what I'm writing. So, I, if it's going to affect you, then you need to let me know now because I'm going to put the truth in here. And they they received it. Mm. They said, Mama, we knew that you went through all this. So it was like history, a history writing for them, a history story. And they read the book. They was like, we did not know that all this happened. Mm. That is, that is something. <laughs> that is something. <laughs> but your kids were protected in that. So that, that was a, a, an amazing thing um, that your kids were protected yeah. in that. Um, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, um, the successes that you have um, gained now in overcoming, you know, that impossible trauma. So you all stick and stay. You are tuned into the Impossible Radio Show with your girl, Lady J, and my special guest, Ms. Gay Willis. We'll be right back. All right, y'all, we are back for the last segment of the Impossible Radio Show. You have been tuned in this morning with your girl, Lady J, and my special guest, Miss Gay Willis. But you all know, before we get back into the interview, it is time for our Impossible Point of Power. So this morning, Impossible Point of Power is all about identity. 
There is an expensive price to pay for trying to be like someone else. You can't afford to be like everybody else when you know who you are. It's black and white. There's no gray. I'm possible. That is your impossible point of power this morning here on Impossible Radio Show. So let's continue the discussion with uh, Miss Willis. Miss Willis, now that you have gone through and survived and overcome uh, this sort of uh, impossible trauma, um, tell us how you overcame it and what you deem to be your greatest successes um, now, and how do you use your story to help other people? I, I I personally believe that my way of overcoming was helping others, and out of, you know out of situations that I I had came came from. So I created a platform called uh, God's Woman with Attitude, and through that platform, I used it to do. Uh, women's workshops, women's conferences. Uh, I'm doing uh, domestic violence conferences. I'm doing uh, workshops. Uh, I do uh, some speaking engagements about, you know, when it comes to domestic violence. I um, also do uh, Pinkalicious, which I haven't done that in a while. I kind of let that go because it kind of got out of, it was, financially it wasn't, it wasn't good for me because Pinkalicious is where I brought women in and their children and and their, you know, all their children, sons, daughters, and we uh, gave lessons on self-esteem, uh, you know, loving yourself, different things. We had different topics each year, and then each family would leave with, uh, with you know, with groceries, and they would leave with uh, brand new shoes for their kids, because a lot of times uh, mothers that are single can't afford to buy nice shoes for their kids. So we would buy. I had a lady to uh, who had a. Um, organization called Blessed Feet. She would buy each child a pair of uh, Nike tennis shoes, and we would offer that to the to kids. They were shocked. Uh, other mm-hmm. things I'm, I'm doing right now is I like, I'm, I'm working toward uh, consulting with uh, I Dare Dream, which is a consulting uh, business who gave us LLC, where I help others who have been through trauma, those who have been through uh, all kind of uh, personal problems they've had, and they not they they have you know let their dreams go. So my goal is to let them know dreams don't die. So mm-hmm. I want to build those people up, and I try to build those people up to let them know that dreams don't die. It doesn't matter that you've been through domestic violence. It doesn't matter that you've been a rape victim. It all that is your is part of your history. It's part of your past, but it's also a part of your life. But your dreams don't die. So just because you've been through something don't mean that you have to give up on what your what your dreams are. So that's what I'm doing right now. And plus, Gigi, the self-destructive addict, she's she's a little off the wall, but she talks real things that people actually get themselves into and can't figure out how to get out. So there are some other things I do, but basically I, I enjoy helping those who need assistance getting back on their feet from trauma. in their lives, especially domestic violence. Hmm. Okay, Um, that is awesome Um, in finding your healing through uh, the support and help of others. If you had to choose, tell me what would be 
the greatest lesson you think you have learned from this experience? The greatest lesson I have learned is I have to you I had to forgive myself for for what I went through because I was mad at myself and angry at myself. And not only that, I had to forgive the perpetrator because they and I had to learn that I didn't cause it, that the perpetrator caused it. They chose to be abusive. I didn't choose it to be abused. So I had to tell my, you know, I had to learn that and I had to walk myself through that and tell myself that I am worthy. I'm worthy to be loved. I'm worthy to have nice things. I'm I'm worthy because God loves me no matter what I've been through. So my biggest accomplishment was was forgiving me. Mm-hmm. For, forgiving myself. So in in this and after you know, going through all of this, what made you come up with the character Gigi um, for self-destructive addict? Because it, it's really, uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, another clever thing, actually genius, uh, the way you talk about relationships, but kind of like this character that is, uh, she's very comedic, but she's also um, kind of quirky and weird. Um, what made you come up with that? You know, I was just thinking of something. My mind runs all the time, you know. You know you got a creative mind, too. So my mind was always running on what can I do? What can I do to help others? What can I What can I? I love drama. I like plays. I, I do a lot of uh, plays. I, I write plays and I also act in plays. So I wanted something that that was all me, that, that that's going to offer someone who, who needs help, even though, it was quirky because a lot something I learned about people that they don't accept it when you direct, but when you go around about away with it, they accept their situations better. And I wanted something where people would accept their situation and, and, and fight to get out of that situation that they're in. And so that's how Gigi was born. Hmm. Uh, that's a, uh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it all together. Um, and, and it, it makes, that those kind of topics a little easier to digest um you know with the in your delivery I should say um so if you if for those of you who don't know so the those of you who are tuning in uh Gigi has now 36 episodes that she has done uh for her show um self-destructive addict and you all will be able to start watching it on the Ego TV channel coming very soon um, as we launched it on Roku last year. But of course, as you all know, Lady J um, suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm. So we had to put the whole channel on pause, but it is still there. But we will relaunch it um, this year in the spring. Um, Lord willing, that's our tentative, you know, uh, I'll say block of time where it will go live, but you all will be able to, to watch it, not just listen to it on air. And if you miss uh, the live show on Wednesday nights from 7.30 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on JQL on radio, you can catch it on any of your major platforms, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, so, Miss um, Willis, let me ask you, um, before we close the show, if you could leave our listeners or somebody that 
um, is going through what you went through with anything, what would you say? If somebody's going through something right now, especially in a situation like domestic violence or even a destructive relationship, no one loves you more than yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you allow others to do anything to you. God loves you, first of all, and then you got to learn to love you. Because if you love you, then you realize that you don't have to be in situations that you find yourself in. But love you first. I love it. And it's not selfish, not selfish to love yourself. I absolutely love it. So can you tell people um, how they can support you and where they can follow you? You can follow me on Gay F. Willis, Facebook. Uh, I Dare Dream is a closed area, but you can subscribe to go in there. It's free. Uh, uh, Twitter, Willis to you on Twitter. And a self-destructive addict, Gigi self-destructive addict is also on uh, Instagram. And Gay F. Willis is also on Instagram. So you can follow me on those platforms. All right. Um, so this has been another episode of the I'm Possible Radio Show. Ms. Willis, thank you um, so thank you. much for uh, coming on to the show and being my guest this morning. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and thank you for being, um, you know, courageous enough and transparent to transparent enough to share your story um, with our listeners. Um, so hopefully your story um, has helped somebody that's, you know, in in that situation. So, yeah, you all, thank you. we can't be ashamed of our past. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you all, thank you so much for tuning in. To another episode of the Impossible Radio Show. Make sure that you all tune in on tomorrow night for Pillow Talk and uh, at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And make sure you tune in Monday night for the Business Banker Spotlight um, at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on JQLM Radio. So, as I always say before in any show, after all of the hell you went through, the word through is an indication that you defeated the impossible too. New adversities will come, but overcoming them has already made you unstoppable, the favor over your life incomparable, which gives you the right to think and believe I'm possible. All right.